Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like nursing mothers taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You may be seated. So, all right, so I'm going to jump into this series. We've been talking about our values. We're going to be talking about value number five today. The first week in this series kind of set up the whole point of values. Um, and then uh, one by one, we've been walking through these values. Uh, the first couple of them uh, had more to do with what we value as far as our, our view of God goes. Um, and then we took a minute, a minute to kind of look at what do we want to value as far as the self goes. Um, and then last week and this week are basically turning and looking at what we want to value as the church, um, as kind of the collective people. Um, with this week really kind of being more about our approach to ministry and discipleship. Um, and so these values kind of rub off on one another and interact with one another, but they're, the hope of this is kind of to express the heart of Stonehouse Church, uh, why it is that we pursue particular things, uh, why we don't pursue uh, other particular things. Um, and as we talk about this, this isn't our effort to, uh, you know, to ball up a bunch of mud and throw it at other churches. This is just our hope to kind of clarify who we are. Um, so that you can understand and, and jump in and uh, we can pull back as much of the curtain as possible and just be like, hey, this is just us. Um, you know, if you're with us, that's awesome. We're really excited about that. Um, and we, you know, we want these things to kind of be out front um, as far as they go. I don't think these values are unique to us. I think a lot of churches value these things. They may not state them as such or maybe they state them differently. Um, but we just wanted to kind of come around them and speak clearly uh, about what these values are. And so we've stated them in kind of a mathematic way by putting up a word and then the greater than symbol and then another word. Um, and we're doing that to kind of compare both the value and the anti-value as we walk through this for uh, further clarity. And so uh, just kind of a list of the values as we've walked through them so far. Our first value is that we value the gospel over religion. Uh, the second is that we value God's word over worldly wisdom. The third is that we value others as more significant than ourselves. And the fourth one from last week is we value contribution over consumption. Um, and so this week, our fifth and final value is articulated as such, that we value presence over programs. 
All right, so I'm going to read a portion of what Nathan just read from 1 Thessalonians 2, and then explain a little bit about what we're not doing with this text um, before we uh, jump in and look at these values. So let's read this, starting in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5. I'll begin with, it says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you, knew, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become, had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses as God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers, for you know... How like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. All right, let's pray and then uh, we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Uh, thank you for these, your beautiful people. Um, you've made us, uh, you've known us, uh, you've seen us, uh, you're with us, uh, and you love us. Um, there is a preciousness about your presence with us, and God, I pray uh, today that as we uh, consider uh, the concept of presence, that we um, are able, by your Spirit, to have our hearts and minds open to understand how Jesus has pursued us in his incarnation and how he is with us um, in our daily lives and struggles um, and the around-the-clock um, goings on in uh, in this walk that we endure. Um, and Lord, may you uh, take the reality of Christ and who he is and what he's done um, and, and press it deep into our souls so as to put a mark on us and to form and fashion us um, closer and more into his image um, that we might become a people uh, who live out the same type of reality, who live out of the understanding of presence and uh, moving into rather than avoiding uh, interaction and messiness and reality in life. Um, God, we, are, we admit we are prone to um, escape. Uh, we are prone to want to um, kind of section off life so as to eliminate stressors. Um, and God, we just see that Jesus did something so utterly different than that. Um, may that truth be um, impactful to our hearts today as we look at this reality. Um, thank you for your word. Thankful, thank you for your people, God, and thank you for uh, building amongst us uh, just a growing awareness and, and, and understanding of the gospel. Uh, may it bear fruit uh, through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So this series is uh, a little unique for us in one very specific way in that we uh, most typically walk through um, books of the Bible, uh, walk through entire passages of Scripture, and really just unpack those passages. Um, that's normally what we do. We'll be jumping back into that after next week uh, when we start a series in Luke. Uh, we're going to be spending um, basically all of the fall and all of the spring in Luke. 
Um, I don't say winter because that doesn't exist here. So uh, basically starting on the 14th of October, moving all the way into Easter, which is like middle of April this year, uh, we'll be in the book of Luke looking at the unique passages in Luke that aren't in Matthew or Mark or John. Uh, and so it'll be a really cool time just looking at Jesus. I love to preach the Gospels. Uh, it, they are exceedingly challenging uh, in their content, um, but just absolutely glorious when we begin to get a picture of what it is that Jesus did, uh, what he taught, and, uh, and who he was. So uh, look forward to digging through Luke with you. It's going to be really fun. So uh, this series is not that, in that we are not really walking verse by verse through a passage um, in fact, we're going to completely side-skirt the, the central point of the passage that we just read. Okay? Uh, the central point of the passage that we just read is an apologetic for Paul and his friend's ministry amongst the churches. Um, so Paul was under fire uh, in the larger passage that Nathan read. He mentioned something about Philippians and how they were mistreated. Um, you know, sometimes the gospel's not real popular. Uh, when you tell people that they're sinners and that they need to repent, the response isn't always cheering and uh, exuberance. It can often be hostile. Uh, and so Paul and his friends were running into that on a regular basis. And as he wrote to the Thessalonians, he was making an argument for what their ministry was like there uh, when Paul was among them. Um, that he was not there trying to just simply make a name for himself. Uh, that he wasn't there to get rich. Okay? Um, he actually was working a lot on the side in order to be there and not demand an offering from the people all the time so that he could eat and live uh, and you know put gas in his car and stuff like that. So there was, there was just a, a giving nature to Paul's ministry. Uh, there also wasn't like trickery and, and kind of like white knuckling and, and manipulation uh, and, and, and pressing people into a, a, a certain uh, performance mindset or, or tricking folks into responding in a particular way. Paul just argues, he's like, listen, we did everything we could to just simply put before you the gospel of Jesus Christ. Day in and day out, over and over again, all we wanted to do was tell you the good news of Jesus and let you respond to that as the Spirit moved in your hearts. We didn't try to strong arm you. We didn't get in here to get popular. We just came here because God told us to come and preach the gospel. And we have all of our assurance that we're accepted in the sight of God. And so we didn't need your approval. We didn't need the people around us to approve of our ministry. We just came and told you the truth. That's all we did. That's all we wanted to do. And so we're, I mean, he's kind of saying I'm innocent, right? Like all your attacks are meritless. All the attacks of the people around you in the city who are telling you that I'm a thief and a crook, they're, they're, you know, you've looked at my life, I, I, I blood, sweat, tears for you, right? Like that's kind of the central thrust of this passage that Paul is laying out for us, the argument for genuine gospel ministry. What does it look like to really be receiving ministry from somebody who is convicted and convinced of the gospel? What is their life going to look like? And Paul's trying to say, I mean, I'm not perfect, guys, but listen, we didn't come in with all these ulterior motives. We just want you to know the gospel. And the reason we're grabbing this passage for our presence over programs value today is particularly because of verse 7 um, and 8 and then verses 11 and 12. Because in the midst of Paul's defense of his ministry, he gives us three really poignant examples of what it's like to... Uh, 
to be in a place where genuine gospel ministry is happening, right? And so Paul gives these illustrations. They're familial uh, in their um, in their illustration, um, and they move us to understand uh, what it is that we ought to see and then also reflect uh, as we endeavor to do gospel ministry. Um, what is it that we want to see formed among us uh, as we pursue Jesus making disciples among women and men? And so I'm going to look at these uh, three little verses in the midst of this text uh, and weave them into this conviction or this value of presence over programs. And so 1 Thessalonians 2.7 is the first place where Paul says this, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And just a side note, moms, um, you're gently taking care of your children. Um, and this is cool that Paul uses that as an example because it just elevates motherhood, right? It just champions moms. And it says being a mom is glorious and beautiful. Uh, it is to be admired and admonished and held up. Uh, it is an example of God in many ways and how he works and how he wants to work through us. Um, and so Paul just elevates motherhood here and we want to do the same thing. Motherhood is tremendously difficult. Uh, it takes just about everything you've got, probably more than what you even have, moms. You know this. Um, but it is, it is such a glorious reality that Paul holds it up as a standard and even like an expectation. Um, Paul basically is like, yeah, man, all moms are just like, amazing with their kids, right? He just really cheers on moms. And so we see kind of a, a, an encouragement away from some of the discouragement that you moms might feel because motherhood and fatherhood are different in particular in their temptations and in their, in kind of the mental game. Moms typically feel less than good enough. That's one of the most significant battles for you as a mom that I'm not good enough mom right, that I'm not a good enough person, that I'm not strong enough, that I'm not giving enough, that I'm not providing enough or whatever. And so here Paul just simply makes a statement. He's like, moms are gentle and they give of themselves to their kids, right, because that is the existence of motherhood. And so when you're in that reality and giving so much, it makes sense that you would have so much doubt because it's so costly and it's so tumultuous. Uh, so be encouraged, moms, that God is building in you a glorious reality and he is giving you a gift uh, in uh, your taking, as you're taking care of your children. So motherhood is a wonderful example of the kind of gentleness that we ought to have when we minister to others. There's an other-centered caring that should mark the follower of Jesus as we engage with other people, right? There's an other-centered motif that ought to move us toward people uh, in a caring and in a compassionate way uh, that ought to push us out of ourselves push us out of comfort, push us out of self-focused concern, and push us into uh, others-centered concern and a, and a caring uh, attitude towards other people. So as great of an example as motherhood is of this kind of love toward others, it is actually not our prime and our greatest example ever. Okay? Our prime and greatest example ever is Jesus Christ himself. Right? The prime and greatest example of this kind of moving into and deeply caring for others' work is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
right? And so we want to, as we talk about this concept of presence over programs, that we want to be a kind of people who value being with, being among, being for people, caring and being tender and being close and being available. We want to value that over kind of the t detached idea of just a, a systematic approach to how to minister to people. That's just a boxed idea of a, like we just do this and then we just do this and then we just do this and then that's how the disciples are made. Right? That's what we're talking about when we want to say value presence over programs. Right, that we want to be like moms <laughs> and we want to be like Jesus and that we want to move into life rather than separate from life by just simply setting up a bunch of stuff to do, right? Like it's one thing to get your kid busy so that you can do dishes and laundry and go to work and different things like that and it's a whole other thing to invest your life into the, the development and the care and the nurture of a kid and that's what motherhood is like. Right? That's just self-sacrificing and pushes us into the lives of others. And so similar uh, is it that we see Jesus moving into um, humanity in order to minister to us from close range. Right? This is one of the, the, just the most profound beauties of the Christian God. Right? I had this awesome conversation with uh, a care provider this week about um, suffering and uh, I, I, my, I lost my dad last fall. I put two dogs down this summer, uh, and, and this person was just asking me about loss and, and what it, how it's impacting me, and I just got to tell them the gospel. I was just like, blah. Like, this is the reality of loss, is that it's painful and it's difficult, and it, and, and it drives you into uh, just strange places that you never thought you'd be before and you don't fully understand. And they said, well, how does your faith interact with that and I said what's profound about my faith is that I'm not alone in these interactions because I know that my God came in here right my God came into suffering my God came into loss right my God came into the story of the difficulty of life and he pursued me in it so that now when I'm here I'm not alone I'm not standing there looking at a God who's never understood my position but I'm standing here looking at the face of Christ who's been low like me, right? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God who existed from all time, eternity past, entered into human history as a baby, fully clothed in humanity, right? Flesh and blood, body and soul, Jesus became a man. He never was a man, and suddenly he became a man. And in the becoming of a man, he also held fully on to his divinity. He was still 100% God, even when he became 100% human being, right? This is a profound mystery of the Christian belief system, that Jesus, fully God and fully man, existed for us. That he has come in our place and in our uh, in our same experience, right? That Jesus became three things, four things, excuse me, human like us, human unlike us, human for us, and human with us. I want to unpack those just a little bit. Jesus became human like us. He was human unlike us. He was human for us, and he is human with us. Number one, Jesus is human like us. He entered into our reality. Jesus was not a God who seemed like a human, okay? Jesus was not, some people say, put on skin. It, it's, it makes sense, kind of, but it wasn't just skin, 
right? It wasn't some glowing angelic being that just pulled a shawl over him so that he wouldn't be shiny anymore, right? Fully human. Like the hypostatic union is the technical theological term for it, that he held together godness and humanness at the same time, fully God, fully man, right? This is the reality of Jesus. And when he came into humanity, he didn't have a, a separate and different human experience than us. He had the same, right? He was a baby and needed to be sustained by another human, right? Just like me and just like you. He cried. He messed himself, right? He screamed when he was hungry. He struggled with feeling alone if he was left in the crib for too long. I, you know, like Jesus had all of that. He had an imperfect mom who couldn't fully provide everything he needed even though she tried really hard and was amazing, right? He had an imperfect dad who we think died somewhere along the timeline of Jesus' life because Joseph isn't in the gospel stories very much, the later life of Jesus. So he lost a dad like I did, like some of you have, right? Jesus had to grow up into adolescence. Oh, dear God, he had puberty, right? He had to go learn reading, writing, arithmetic. Like, this was the same kind of life that you and I have had. He struggled. He was tempted. He was tired. He cried. He bled. He sweat. Right? He built a group of friends, pulled them close, was misunderstood by them. There was a lot of confusion there. His family tried to pull him away from his purpose and his ministry. They thought he was crazy. His own hometown rejected his ministry. Right? The ones who eventually, who became some of the closest, eventually abandoned him at his deepest, darkest hour of need. One of his 12 best friends sold him like a common slave. Right? His own people, his own country, his own tribe turned him over to an invading army to torture him on the grossest torture chamber created by humans ever. This is the existence of the humanity of Jesus. He was human like us, but as much as he was human like us, he also was human unlike us. What do I mean? I mean primarily that he was a human without sin, that never once in thought, in attitude, in action, or in inaction did Jesus break the law of God. He upheld the fullness of the law in a way that none of us ever have before. And so Jesus was human unlike us in that he showed us what God intended humanity, unbroken, uninterrupted, unfractured, what God really intended humanity to look like. Jesus is the only one who's ever lived that life. He was human in a way unlike us. And the, the reason he was human like us and human unlike us is because we needed him to be human for us. Because we needed someone to represent us before God and to be our substitute. Right? This is why when we talk about Jesus, I just touched on this at our city group this week, when we talk about Jesus, we don't just talk about the cross. 
right? As if that's all that Jesus is for, right? We talk about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus because without all of Jesus, we do not have right standing before our Father in heaven, right? We need the cross because we need Jesus' shed blood to wash away our sins, but we need Jesus' perfect life because we need an advocate to stand before us in our place and say, I'm righteous, because none of us in our own will and in our own power can stand before God and say, I'm righteous. We cannot. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Jesus moves into our place as a perfect human, doing that life, being unlike us for us, so that we could have someone stand before the just and perfect judge and say, perfect, righteous, it's done. The record of Jesus and his spotless life has been transposed over the top of your own record. Think official court document, you were guilty and due to be sentenced. I've got to go to court soon for a traffic thing and I cannot wait for the moment when the guy says, yeah, you're right and the cop was wrong. I don't know if it's going to happen, but y'all are like, wait a minute, what happened? I can't, like, I'm like, I'm really nervous for that moment. Please tell me I'm not really guilty. I want to be free. I want the $166. I need the $166. doesn't seem like a lot, but it is. Please let me go free, right? Jesus steps in, though the, 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 the statement should be guilty. Instead, we receive the judgment of guiltless, righteous, because Jesus' life is put in place of your life. That's why you needed Jesus to be human for you. And finally, Jesus is human with us. This isn't a super um, highlighted teaching, but Jesus right now is still human, okay? The makeup of the Trinity was eternally affected when Christ responded to the command of God, to the plan of God, and came into human history, okay? Jesus lived a perfect human life. He died an excruciating death as a human. He was buried bodily, physically, in a tomb, laid there for three days, and then what happened? The tomb rolled away, the angels walked in, and he became an angel. No, his body was glorified. He was instantly transformed, like Paul says, we will be at the judgment, right? The final day. Instantly transformed from a dead merely physical human to an alive spiritual and physical human fully alive fully glorified and in that state jesus ascended into heaven where he sits currently enthroned as king over all of the universe god and man still right and at that spot on that seat jesus is for you and for me an advocate who still understands. Right? Humanity is not some distant memory for Jesus. It's a current reality. Jesus sympathizes with you as a human because he was a human and he is a human. This is profound. The prayers of Jesus for you, like I don't know if you've ever physically heard somebody pray for you, walked in the room accidentally and they were praying for you? Anyone? I remember this. I remember this. My grandma. She used to read the Bible out loud every morning and then pray out loud every morning. Right? When I was a teenager and I was sleeping until noon, right? Like, 
That was Grandma's glorious morning. She just had to make sure I was getting out of bed at some point. And, and I would walk into the porch and hear, or into the kitchen and hear Grandma on the porch reading the Bible or hear her praying for me or for my brothers. Can you imagine Jesus, who's perfect, who knows you, who understands your struggles, who felt temptation like you feel now? He's praying for you. Still today, this is a glorious reality. And listen, the incarnation of Jesus changes everything then about the way that we live our life and our ministry uh, in the world that we live in today. I want to finish the thoughts on incarnation with one verse from 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Jesus, fully God, fully man, came and incarnated. He took on flesh and blood and moved into the experience of humanity in order to bring to us the truth of God. This affects the way we think about how ministry should be done, right? God didn't stand aloof and just send some information, right? He entered the story and he brought his word. This matters everything for us. The incarnation of Jesus is the pattern laid out for us as regards all of gospel ministry. So 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, moving on, Paul says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul here talks about this reality of how they brought the gospel, that they didn't simply bring information, but they brought the embodiment of the information in them as people, that they moved in and shared their selves more than just simply sharing the news. And so when we say that we value presence over programs, we're making kind of a, a delineation between two types of environments uh, that can exist within a church, right? And I want to help clarify this by doing some comparing and contrasting. Uh, and, and this moment might be a little more family-like and, and teachy here, but I just want to look at these contrasting ways of pursuing discipleship and ministry within the local church. So the way that we want to pursue a long way of saying we want to value pro, uh, presence uh, is, is for us to say this, that we want to value compassionate relationships that cultivate authentic care and personal health, leading to a true experience of messy life-on-life -life discipleship. Okay, that's a long-winded way of saying we want to value presence, Right? Prioritization of compassionate relationships that can cultivate authentic care and personal health leading to a true experience of messy life-on-life -life discipleship. Now this is compared to or contrasted with uh, what might be a more programmed approach to ministry. And a programmed approach, maybe a more long-winded way of saying that, is that it would be a prescribed growth track through a rigid and defined process aimed at comfortably producing neat and tidy clones. 
Okay? Now that's overstatement for a reason, but that's kind of what we're trying to avoid and want to intentionally not build here in the church. We do not want to construct prescribed growth tracks through a rigid and defined process aimed at comfortably producing neat and tidy clones. Now there's some good and some bad and some difficulty here. And I want to press into this for a minute because if we compare the presence over programs, we might see that the the idea of presence, these compassionate relationships that cultivate authentic care, that they might be more difficult to begin, right? They might be a stretch to enter into. They might be requiring more patience of us and a little bit more frustration from us as well, right? Whereas the programmed approach might be a little more easy to enter, enter into. Oh, I just need a class or a group or a thing. Sign me up, I go, and I'm in, right? The relationships are messy, and they develop organically and slowly, whereas a program just is, just kind of sign a sheet, and yeah, boom, taken care of, right? Also, the relationships and the presence might be slower to develop, whereas the prescribed growth track has a simple way of tracking progress. I did this, I checked off the box. I did that, I checked off the box. I must be maturing and growing as a disciple. I did that, and I checked off a box. I did that, and I checked off a box, right? Might be easier and simpler, but over time, tends to break down. One of the things that's beautiful about compassionate relationships is that they are broad in their potential. When you actually enter into a life-on-life discipleship type of interaction with people, the the areas of life that, be, that get touched and taught and sharpened and challenged are broad, right? More and more we start to realize, wow, there are lots of places for the gospel to be applicable in my heart and in my life. Whereas in a programmed approach, we might be prone to cluster by affinity. We might be led to a place where all that we interact with is people that are like us, going through the same struggles of us, as us, And so we're narrowed in what we can deal with and what the gospel touches on. As we pursue presence, we'll see that the work of God is an around-the-clock type of work and a throughout-the-year type of work. Rather than having all these clean breaks and starts and stops where things are off-limits and untouchable, as we enter this story, we'll find that there's an unlimited capacity that relationships have to touch and to change and to challenge and to push us. And that hopefully that reality endures through many life stages, through all the different changes that we go through and that aren't just shortened and ended by life transitions and changes that we go through. So we want to, as a church, prioritize the one over the other. And for some of us, it might be kind of a breaking from some of what we've known and enjoyed. And that's one of the other challenges, right? Uh, Especially if you were a Christian as a youth and you had like a really cool youth program. I'm not bagging really cool youth programs. Totally changed my life, right? Um, But so much of the structure of that system is things that are built and then given to you um, so that you just simply take them up and do them, right? Again, nothing absolutely wrong with them, but if we pull that into real life, full adulthood experience, we find that often we can't fit into that type of structure. Life is just more complicated and more messy, a little bit tougher to figure out, right? And eventually we want to grow out of the they, the professional ministers need to do everything for me so that I can fit in and find my spot, 
Rather, we want to enter into an ownership type of mentality that, like, God is putting on me the opportunity and the responsibility for my own growth as well. That I don't solely look at you to give me everything, but I actually pursue you and I enter into these greater beneficial relationships. So it can be a challenge and it can be difficult, but I believe in the long run, it's worth it. And one of the things that we try to do here at a church to kind of prioritize this approach to ministry is that we practice a limited schedule, right? We try not to just completely litter your life with church events um, because we really want to do a couple of things with that. We want to encourage you to get out into life, right? To get out into the city and to get out into relationships, to get out into your neighborhood, to get to know both followers and doubters and seekers so that you can begin to see that the gospel permeates all of the areas of life. We want to keep a thin schedule here at the church because we want to get out of the mindset that following Jesus is something related or relegated to just simply showing up at events. We want to get out of the habit of looking at worship as just something you do when the band is playing, right? Romans 12, 1 and 2 pushes us to the understanding that worship is life and that life is worship, that it isn't just simply singing in church events. We want to kind of push you out of the routine of only seeing these people around you at something that we organize for you. want to put the ball in your court. <laughs> want to encourage you, even when it's tough and awkward and really slow, to try pursuing people, right? To getting out there and getting your feet wet. It might be challenging, but I believe in the long run it's beautiful and helpful and fruitful. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not involvement in our church, right? We talked a lot about that last week. But this doesn't mean that we don't want to do life together. This doesn't mean that we're not going to do things. It doesn't mean that at all. We're going to do things, right? We just had to cancel one of those things a little while ago, but we're going to do things. In November, we're going to do kickball and picnic. We're going to do things. We still do city groups, right? Our pillars are Sunday and city, Sunday mornings and city groups. That's the... the biggest thrusts of our church, but we also want to encourage bowling this summer, right? Hanging out at Iberian Rooster. Um, just getting out and doing these different things. And like I said last week, some of the best ways to connect is through serving with others, uh, through jumping into Citigroup, and launching from there, right? We don't want that to be the end. We want that to be a launch pad. That's why we take a break from our city groups in the summer and around Christmas, because we don't want the whole of community to exist just with a Monday night or a Wednesday night or a Thursday night, right? Enjoying community together has got to be bigger than a night, right? Hope that it spreads out into life. And there's plenty of room for us to grow in these ways, to still do events, to still maybe have classes and different opportunities like that, but for them not to overwhelm us and to push us into a program-centered way of doing ministry. We want to see true growth in the gospel together. We want to pursue real-time discipleship and a proper understanding and response to the life and the ministry of Jesus. Paul Tripp says this, it's good and proper for the local church to organize various ministries for the body of Christ. However, disciples of Jesus are called to offer every aspect of their life to the kingdom of God, not just those on the church calendar. It is unbiblical for us to think of ministry as separate from life. 
as if we step out of one and into the other. Instead, we ought to live with a constant mentality that asks the question, how can I, right here, right now, be part of what God is doing on this earth? Right? We want to push you into broadening your horizons, not compartmentalizing your faith, turning on and off the Christian duties according to the calendar, but understanding that Jesus is everywhere and in everything. David understood this as he contemplated the presence of God in Psalms 139, Psalm 139. This is beautiful. Listen to me. He says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, he continues in verse 7, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be my night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Jesus wants to incarnate into all the areas and the corners and the secrets of your life. He's there. He's moving in. He's getting close. And listen, I know some of you, like, you're feeling this on an intense level, right? Like, I'm listening. I can hear it in your words. Jesus is not sticking to the spots that you thought he's supposed to stick to. He's invading Wednesday morning. What are you doing here, Jesus? <laughs> I'm like three days away from seeing you. Why are you here? Right? He seeps in while you're on the middle of, in the middle of that phone call. You're like, hey, hey, hold on a second. He's close and he's moving in. Right? Sometimes it seems interruptive. Like, why did I just think of that? I, I don't want you here right now, Jesus. Right? He's invading the moments. I, can you leave me alone to these thoughts? But it's a glorious thing to behold the reality of how God's work is permeating every part of our lives. Nothing is off limits. He can't be relegated just to Sunday or to quiet time or to a fellowship hour. He's moving in and he's having an effect everywhere. Tim Keller says very poignantly, you will never encounter the living God unless you're open to his unmanageability. He's not working on your time schedule. He's not working according to your, your calendar. He's not, as C.S. Lewis writes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he's a lion, but he's not a tame lion, right? Aslan. So we want to enter into this reality both together and also as we uh, approach the city as a church. Because Presence Over Programs also describes the manner in which we want to approach our city with the good news of Jesus. Right? 
We don't want to stand far back and lob gospel bombs over some artificial wall as we keep a safe distance from those people, right? That's not incarnational ministry. That's not gospel-motivated way of interacting with the world. We want to move into the story of St. Pete, right? We want to know the stories of the people that we rub shoulders with. We want to ask questions and listen well to our neighbors and our colleagues and our classmates, right? We want to understand the questions they have. We want to get why they don't want anything to do with church or with our Christ, Right? We want to move into these moments. We want to explore the depths of who they are. We don't want to simply approach the problems of our city with some canned response and expect people to respond to how we are. We want to move in so that we can understand who they are. So that then by understanding the gospel in a beautiful way and then understanding the lives of those that we know in a beautiful way, we can create an intersection between the two. Start to say, I know your story, I hear your story, I know the greater story, it's God's story, and they, they belong together. You can find yours underneath and within the greater picture of who God is and what he's doing, hoping to retell their stories in light of the bigger story of the gospel. But doing that, it takes time, right? We've got to be willing to pursue and be patient. We've got to be willing to stop just categorizing people and saying, oh, well, they're this. So that means A, B, C, D. D, all these things are true about them, because that's what Facebook told me, so they must be that, right, without understanding a thing about them and their pain and their history and their family and their doubts and their struggles and their temptations, right? Listen, we do this politically, we do, we do this socioeconomically, we do this with skin color, we do this with education level. And we've got to let the gospel obliterate those boxes and get us to understand the incarnate Jesus did not determine that a particular group of people were hands off to him. He approached them all. Tax collector, Pharisee, prostitute, fisherman, Roman, Greek, Israelite, Jew and Gentile alike, men and women and children, the incarnation of Jesus moved into the life of all humanity. When we do that, I believe God will overcome our fears and our misunderstandings and our prejudices so that we might really be ready to engage the hearts of those who do not know the blessedness of Christ. Amen. I want to finish quickly with verses 11 and 12. Paul says this, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Dads, we got a quick side note for you too. What up? Got one for the moms, we got one for the dads, right? Look at these three things that Paul talks about that are like a father with his children. Exhorting, encouraging, and charging. Action words, dads. Action words. If women are tempted to think they're not good enough, men are tempted towards abdication, okay? To give up their role and responsibility. To say child rearing is a woman thing. Pish posh. 
right? I'm so glad there's baby changing tables in men's restrooms finally. Just a small example of us finally getting it. This is us, not her, men. These are action words, right? Exhort, what does that mean? To strongly urge toward a certain action or attitude. Involvement, knowledge, action. Encourage, what does that mean? To give support, to build confidence, to stimulate towards life and to produce hope in someone. Men, encourage your children to charge them. What does that mean? To entrust them to the obligations and privileges of a God-honoring life. Put it before them. Engage with them. Converse with them. Imagine their life as it glorifies God in the future and work them toward that. It's your duty. Please, for God's sake, do it. The world would be a different place if we had dads. Lord, help me. I want to get mad. When we minister from afar, when we protect these nice boxes of programs, we remove the personal interaction and investment of walking together with someone experiencing Christ's hands-on discipleship. Right? This call that mirrors the action of fathers, the call to us is an active call, right? To take action in the pursuit of these things, to dig in. We want to invest in people in a way that actually cares about their outcome, right? That jumps in with them, that puts something on the line, right? So that if you're investing time and energy in pointing somebody to Jesus and they move the other direction, it would crush your heart. You wouldn't just go, oh man, oh well, another one lost to the ways of the world, right? But like a father would break you and bring you to your knees. Are you invested like that in the life of someone else? It's not just the pastor's job. Amen? May Jesus move us toward that reality. May we engage through our presence, through being with people, through enduring in patient hope for the long haul of authentic and messy growth, right? That's one of the things about presence over programs is that it is not pretty, right? You don't just get little certificates once you complete a task and move on to the next thing, man. It's a mess. I saw last week a chart that a friend made of spiritual growth. He charted out kind of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, and it was just this gigantic swirly line on a board. It's it. You don't go, mm, oh, mm, oh, oh, mm. no, man. It's like all over the place. Let's, let's get into that, right? That's what we want. And listen, we're liberated to understand that's okay and expected when we know that Jesus has come perfectly for us, right? One of the things that neat and tidy little clone-making Christianity does is put pressure on the process and say, you've got to achieve these things because that's what will make God happy, and that brings us all the way back to value number one, where we value the gospel over religion. Because it is not up to you to impress God with your somersaults, with your certificates, with your Bible memorization, and your class completions. You don't have to. 
Jesus did for you. Jesus entered into your mess and completely and perfectly satisfied the just requirements of God's great law. And now he's liberated you to be a mess. A glorious, complicated, confusing, sometimes dark, sometimes bright, sometimes happy, sometimes depressed mess of a disciple. And look around you. I just described your neighbor as much as I described you. Let's get it. Let's get it. Right? Listen. This is one of the hardest things in the world. One of the hardest things in the world. And the world has neatly constructed for you an eject button. Even the church has neatly constructed for you an eject button. It's right there. Like, right there. You can pull out of this and just as quickly find yourself in another seat next week based on the expectations of the Christian culture we live in and move on and feel just fine. Okay? This isn't some kind of manipulation to make you stay in my church. But we've got to understand we're going to get nowhere if we only endure for six months. Right? No athlete won any championship after trying for six months. No soldier won any war after enlisting for a few days. Right? No farmer produced a crop and fed thousands by only sticking to it until it got rainy. Let's get it. It's a mess. It's a mess. And it's a glorious mess. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. When we consider your life, we're prone to imagine things being neat and easy. And we need the reminder that every aspect of you being who you were, doing what you did, accomplishing for us what you accomplished, it was all against the grain. You pushed against human tendencies. You struggled against temptation. You resisted the desire to give in quickly. You relinquished your right to a neat and tidy little system. You entered the story with 12 drastically different dudes and walked through everyday life with them for three years. You watched them argue. You watched them fight. You watched them misunderstand. You watched them misjudge people. You watched them want to burn down cities. <laughs> you watched them get jealous of one another. And you were with them in it all the way. Oh God, that you would produce here in St. Pete an incarnational people who value the presence of personal life-on-life -life relationship dynamics. The mess and the struggle 
and the two steps forward, three steps back type of journey. The ins and outs of being failed and failing, of having to forgive and being forgiven. The difficulty of those awkward conversations and the joy of seeing Jesus do his work. God, would you please build us into a people that value that kind of life, that elevate that kind of life, and that push through when it's tough to get there. Because, God, it is. It is very tough to get there. So, Lord, thank you that because of Christ's perfect life, we do not have to get this right. We can fail and still be yours. We can still be called daughter and son even when we mess up because it's all on Jesus. And so help us, Jesus, by your permanent presence right now in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit as you pray and advocate for us in heaven above, would you enable us to engage this mess, to go in and to do this and to bring glory to your name for our sight, for our city's sight, for all the angels to see glory for Jesus as he works with the messy people. God, we thank you. We love you. And we give you praise this morning. In Christ's name, amen.